Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. ...from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons, and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, What are you... What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let's stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. We're going to continue, obviously, in... uh the book of Nehemiah, we're to chapter 5, where we take a hard pivot from where we have been up to this point. Um, up to this point, uh, last week, you'll remember, as Parker was teaching, they were still trying to rebuild the wall, and yet they were under tremendous attack, so much so that they all had to have weapons with them all the time. They had a trowel in one hand, they had a sword in the other, or they had a sword on their, on their hip. They had to always be aware of what was going on, and there was this external threat that was ever-present that they were dealing with. You know, nothing steals the resolve of us like an external threat, right? It's not something that you have to be told to uh, be aware of. It's almost instinctual. I was thinking back as I was preparing for the message back in the fall of 1941. The world was blowing up and countries were going to war with each other and there was all kinds of turmoil. And here in the United States, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to get involved. They didn't know how to get involved. They didn't know whether to send money or what to do. And there was a great uh, discussion going on about all of that until December 7th when the Empire of Japan struck against the naval station in Pearl Harbor, and all of a sudden, there was this instant response. There was an external threat that came against us, and all of a sudden, 
almost naturally everything was, was a resolve against that external threat. We see that in our personal lives when we have external threats that come against us. It's, it's almost like a laser focused against it, isn't it? If somebody comes up to you and they want to punch you in the nose, you don't have to be told, hey, you should think about maybe defending yourself or getting out of here or doing something. It's an immediate, it's an instinctual response. External threats are the easy ones because we can see them and we can respond to them and focusing on them, on them is easy. Not that victory is easy, but focusing on external threats is easier than internal ones. You know, we sit here this morning and we think about the church, the church globally and the threats against the church, the threats that are out there and that are seeking to destroy God's church. And it seems like law and order is falling apart all over the world. It seems like what's wrong is being celebrated and what's right is being condemned. And it seems like everything's coming apart and it would be easy for us to look at the external threat and focus all of our attention on the external threat that's out there. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it is wrong to address external threats, okay? What I am saying is that it's a more natural response. It's almost instinctual that when we see the threat, we respond to the threat. It gets our attention immediately, and it's easy to know, and it's easy to address, and it's easy to respond to. To this point, as we've been looking at the nation of Israel, that's almost exclusively what we've been looking at. From the time that God stirred the heart of Cyrus and said, I want to bring my people back to Jerusalem, they had to make that journey to Jerusalem and the difficulty of that, and then getting to Jerusalem, there were people there they weren't happy that they were there and they opposed them and they tried to stop what they were doing. And then Ezra and his journey and the ambushes that were threatening them and the danger that was out there that they were up against and then getting, uh, getting to Jerusalem and now uh, we've been watching the rebuilding of the city and now the rebuilding of the walls and there have been people trying to get them. Almost exclusively to this point in Ezra and Nehemiah, we have been focused on these external threats, trying to thwart what God was doing. And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, our passage for today. And all of a sudden, we take a hard pivot from looking at the danger that's out there to the danger that was within the community of God's people. And Nehemiah is going to lead the way for this. He's going to take us from focusing in on the external threat to looking at the threat that is within God's people. Their lives, God, God, God was about rebuilding more than a city. Sometimes I think as we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, it's easy for us to look at and think that God wanted to rebuild Jerusalem. He wanted to rebuild the temple. He wanted to rebuild the walls. He wanted to rebuild the society so that people could go about living their lives and doing their thing in Jerusalem. And the reality is God was restoring his people. He cared more about the, the, the stones and the buildings and all of those things. He cared about the heart of his people that they would honor him and that they would bring glory to him 
And so as serious as the external threats were, the threat that we're going to look at this morning is, is even more dangerous. And I just say all of this to say we need to be aware that the external threats are so much easier for us to focus on. You know, I was thinking about Jesus with his disciples, and he's saying, why are you worried about the speck that's in your neighbor's eye and not even aware of the beam that's in your own eye? That's the way we operate. We need to know that. It's easy for us to see those threats, but it's important for us to understand the threat that's within our own camp, within our church, and within our hearts. And so what we're going to look at today is vitally important for us as a church and for individuals as we consider the threat that is within. So before we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, let's just pray together again. Lord, we're so thankful that uh, in your wisdom uh, you saw fit to uh, write your word and to give it to us, to instruct us, to guide us, and to, to give us a glimpse into your heart. I pray as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us through your spirit. Uh, I know that we all have blind spots in our lives and we have dangers within the church. I pray that you would help us to be aware of those, repent of those, and turn to you. I pray that you would help us to be the people that you have called us to be. I pray that our lives would be such that they would bring glory and honor and, and joy to you. I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at it this morning, we're going to look at four steps of God's correction through uh, Nehemiah. We're going to look at and identify the problem that had developed. We're going to examine the correction that was required. We're going to explain the resolution that they agreed to. And then we're going to learn from the example set by Nehemiah. And um, we'll start in verses 1 through 5. I know that Nate did an awesome job of reading that, and I can't come close to even reading as well as you. But let's look at verses 1 to 5 again. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against the, the Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons, our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children. Yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And this is really the crux, if you will, of, of the issue, is the fact that there were people that were powerless and there were people that were powerful. Now, in and of itself, it's not immoral for somebody to be rich and powerful. It could be wrong, depending on how they did it. And it's not wrong or immoral or right or righteous for somebody to be poor. The status isn't the issue. The problem that came out here was the fact that we had deep poverty and it intersected with this, this greed and power. So you had powerless people 
They were in desperate need, being exploited by wealthy, powerful people that were driven by greed. And it's that intersection that we find social injustice. And social injustice is the powerful exploiting the powerless. This is, and let's be clear, the antithesis, the opposite of God's heart. When he says to love your brother as yourself, this is the opposite of that. And when we understand that and we are, when we understand the depth of God's hatred for this behavior, then we can understand Nehemiah's response and why it was so strong. So before we jump into the problem, let's look at the people. Who are these people that we're talking about? Well, first of all, let's understand that we're talking about the people of God. Everybody we're talking about here, we're talking about the people of God. So we've got the powerless and we've got the powerful. The powerless people were really two different kinds. The first ones were just working people that didn't have anything. They were just getting by, they were working, they'd get a little money, they'd buy some food, and they'd go on to the next day. There was another group of people that were just getting by, but they owned things. They had houses, they had fields, they had vineyards, they had stuff, okay? And they were able to get by. Now, the famine came, and the famine was the stressor that caused all this problem. So... We've got the powerful people that have lots of money. They can withstand the famine. They can withstand anything. They're, they're just sitting back enjoying life and everything's good. They might have even been hoping for a famine. Just like wealthy people today are hoping for a recession. Because when that happens, they're buy, buying opportunities to make gobs and gobs and gobs of money. These rich people may have even been hoping for a famine and looking for the opportunity to take advantage of their fellow countrymen. We don't know that for sure, but their response makes us think that. And you, you need to know that their culture was different than ours and that they didn't have a banker's trust or a Wells Fargo branch where when things got tough, they could go and get a loan and, and repay and do it the way that we do. You know, if you need to buy a car, chances are you're going to get a loan and go buy a car. You're going to pay it off in a few years and go about your life. Well, they didn't have that. They were dependent on the integrity and the godliness of their brothers that had more than they did to help them out and to lend to them and, and all of that. And that's where this is breaking down. So, again, the problem here is the intersection of the desperate need and the unbridled greed. And there are two reasons or two main causes for the poverty that these people were experiencing. Again, remember, these people were just getting by on the best of conditions, okay? And then hits this famine. This is the stressor. You, you could kind of look at it like COVID, right? COVID was an exposer of a lot of things that were covered up, right? This famine was an exposer of the sin that was in the hearts of these people. So when the famine came, it caused extreme poverty and the food supply dwindled so the prices went up and they couldn't afford to have enough money to buy food. 
It's interesting that it says that Nehemiah heard an outcry. I wonder what that looked like. You know, because he's walking around, he heard an outcry. Was it one person? Was it a, what was it? Was it, was it a group of people? Were they chanting, you know, hey, hey, ho, ho, empty bellies have got to go. We, we need help. I don't know what they were saying. But somehow they were making noise. They were, there was an outcry that Nehemiah heard. You say, well, that doesn't seem very civilized to make a big ruckus like that. The option was to stay silent and starve and die. That's where these people were. They had no food, they had no money, and nobody to help them. Their only option was to cause a ruckus, to try to get something to happen, to try to get some food. They had no options. That's the desperation that they found themselves in. And then on top of that, for those in this situation that had stuff, they had fields, they had homes, they had uh, vineyards and all this stuff, they had to pay the king's tax on top of that. That wasn't an option. They had to pay that tax. And they're sitting there going, how do I do that? I, I don't have any ability to do that. Well, Mr. Richman over here is more than happy to give you the money to pay the king's tax at a rate of return. Now, you think about it, you know, if, if 5% would have been a normal rate of return, he might have charged 500% interest because he knew that the person had no options. They needed the money to pay the king. There was a desperate situation so there was the famine, there was a king's tax, they were in deep, serious poverty. And that's what led to the sin of selfish ambition or greed or exposed it. Again, the people that had all the money were sitting there, they, they had an option, didn't they? They could help out their countrymen, they could give them the money and help them along, or they could exploit the situation so that they could get for themselves. They could get for themselves all of those houses, all of those fields, all of those vineyards. Some of these people were walking around picking out the ones they wanted. That is an extraordinary vineyard. I want that one. I'm going to lend that person money so that they can pay the king's tax because I know they won't be able to pay me back and that vineyard is going to be mine. Or they're thinking... Here's a family with a bunch of strong boys. I need some help running my operation. Those boys could be real help to me. I'm going to loan this family some money. I know they won't be able to pay me back. The only way that they're going to be able to do that is for those boys to come be my slaves and work for me. That's the exploitation that was happening. Think, wow. That's so different from our experience today. We would never exploit each other in that way, would we? It's a rhetorical question. See, this is why I fold the pages of my notes so that I can get to them. So it's easy for us this morning to sit back and think, you know, that was such a long time ago. That was such a different society. That was such a different culture. 
We are now civilized people. We, we're in a very different situation. Ours isn't like that. We're not like those people. And that's where we make the mistake. God's people back then were people like we are people. We, we use the terminology, we are God's people, don't we? And as God's people, we shouldn't need any laws to regulate us because we should follow God perfectly, right? God has given us his word. That's all we need. We shouldn't need anything else, right? We should all be able to follow God's word and total obedience in our society, and we would never have the issues that these people are dealing with here. And yet, it doesn't work that way, does it? And even though we live in this amazing country that was founded by some really, really great guys, it's not perfect. They had to establish laws. Why did they have to establish laws? Because we are sinful, just like God's people are sinful. Now, the, the laws that were established for this country are not God's laws. They are our laws, and they are what we need to, oh my goodness, to, uh, to treat each other right. Sorry about that. That's why one of our founding fathers, James Adams, said, our Constitution is only made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. They set up a government that depended on people being holy and godly, and guess what? They weren't and were not. And so from that time to this time, there have been continual adjustments and corrections and laws that were passed so that, I've got to shut this off, <laughs> so that we can treat each other the way that we're supposed to. You know, I don't know if you've heard the song 16 Tons. Probably if you're older, maybe you had. Tennessee Ernie Ford. There's a line in the song that said, you load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Much of what was happening in, in Nehemiah 5 has even happened in modern times. In the 1800s, a company would go into an impoverished area and they would put up a factory. And the people in that area had nothing they were living in tents and lean to, I mean, poverty we can't even imagine. This com company would set up a factory. They would build this nice little town full of nice little houses, and they would put a store there, and they would go to all of these poor people in the area, and they would say, come work at our factory, and you can live in one of these nice houses, and you can shop in our nice store and have food and have a lifestyle that you would never dream of having. The only issue was, the pay that they received was given in vouchers for the housing and for the food, and the vouchers weren't enough to cover the cost. So they give the voucher, and it would be a little bit short. So in their generosity, the store would open up a line of credit for them. It said, you're a little bit short, but we'll put it on your line of credit. You go to the grocery store to buy food for your family, but it doesn't quite cover what you need. So they add it to your line of credit. And what happens is over time, your line of credit becomes more than you could ever imagine. And there's no way out. You're trapped. And if you tried to leave, maybe you've heard of the phrase a debtor's prison. You would go to a debtor's prison where they would hold you in prison. During the day, you would work. Whatever you could earn that day would be paid back against your debt until such a time as you could satisfy that debt. The condition 
that the people of Israel were experiencing then are still the heart conditions that we experience and deal with today. That was a problem. Now, what we want to do is look at and examine the correction. And this is in verse 9. There's a lot in verse 9, so let's look at that. It says, Then I said, what, are you, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and not invite the reproach of foreign enemies? So there are three things in there that we want to look at. He says, what you're doing isn't right. You're thinking wrongly. There needed to be a correction of their thinking. The fact that they were thinking that it was okay to do this or that they could get by with it or that there wouldn't be any consequences was wrong. And they knew that because they had been taught that. You think about these people, where were they taught from? They were taught from the Pentateuch. They were taught from the law. And we can look back to Leviticus chapter 24, and it tells exactly how they were taught. Leviticus chapter 25 and verses 39 through 43. If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired worker, a temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are are to be released from you, and he may return to his clan and ancestral property. They are not to be sold as slaves, because they are my servants. I brought them out of the land of Egypt. You are not to rule over them harshly, but to fear your God. That's what they had been taught, and yet they were still doing the opposite. Their thinking had become dulled. And they weren't thinking rightly about the truth of what God had instructed them to do. And Nehemiah wanted to correct that. The second thing that needed correcting was their heart. When he says, you are not walking in the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord should be something that moves our heart. I don't know if you've ever been uh, reminded of something in your past Somebody says something, and he immediately transfers you back to a place and a time. I can tell you about a time in the, in the summer of 1977. Yes, I can. And we were sitting around the dinner table. It was late afternoon, and my dad, we were expecting him to get home from work any minute, and we were going to have dinner. And my, my mom was bringing the food to the table, and my oldest brother was leaning back on his chair, and... Uh, the furniture in our home wasn't exactly the highest of quality. It made Ikea look like, you know, I don't know. She told him, stop tipping on your chair. And just as my dad opened the door, he started to talk. And he said, there ain't no law that says you can't tip in your chair. And just as he finished talking, my dad stepped into the room and grabbed him by the collar. And it was a little fuzzy from then. But all I know is he disappeared and there was parenting that's probably not approved of these days that happened at that point. Now, that was 45 years ago. And you can come to our family reunions and you can say the phrase, there ain't no law. Everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. When Nehemiah said to these people, you should be walking in the fear of the Lord, they had that kind of a moment because they remembered back to what Jeremiah had said. And it was a frightful thing. In Jeremiah chapter 34, in verses 8 to 11, and then 17 and 18, it says, starting in verse 8, 
This is a word that came from Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom to them. As a result, each of you should let his male and female Hebrew slaves go free, and no one was to enslave his fellow Judean. All the officials and people who entered into the covenant to let their male and female slaves go free in order not to enslave them any longer obeyed and let them go free. Afterward, however, they changed their minds and took back their male and female slaves that they had let go and forced them to become slaves again. Now jump down to verse 17. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me by proclaiming freedom, each for his fellow Hebrew and for his neighbor. I hereby proclaim freedom for you. This is the Lord's declaration to the sword, to famine, and to plague and to famine. I will make you a horror to all the earth's kingdoms. As for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between the pieces. They're sitting there thinking, how did we get here? We are in danger. We have really messed up. And God is not to be trifled with. And so immediately they understood what he was saying, and their hearts had to change. The, second, or the third correction is in their behavior. And he says, you're in, inviting the reproach of our foreign enemies. You're making a mockery of God. Our enemies are looking at us. We have spent so much time and money buying back all of these slaves from the exile and now they're looking at us and saying, they're doing the same thing. They're enslaving their own people. What a joke. And they were laughing at God's people and they were mocking God. Their behavior had to change. They had to stop doing this. <clears throat> it's so interesting, isn't it? And this is a thing to keep in mind. That these people were excited about what God was doing. They were excited about God's plan. They were excited about being a part of God's plan, about the fact that God was restoring his people. And they were focused on that. They were working hard at doing that, and they were thrilled to be a part of that. And yet, at the same time, they neglected his teaching and his sovereignty. It is possible for that to happen. So, Nehemiah explained to them what needed to happen, the correction that was required, and then we get down to the good news in chapter, or in uh, verses 10 through 13. And this is where he said, you got to let everybody go, give them their stuff back, and don't require them to pay anything back. And they all said, okay, we'll do that. You're right. We're wrong. We're going to do that. And I love the, the, the Ronald Reagan part of this. It says, trust but verify. He goes, okay, you said you're going to do that, but I'm going to make you swear out an oath. Now, keep in mind, this wasn't just Nehemiah in a room full of rich people. Because when Nehemiah decided what needed to happen, he called a large assembly together, right? And all of these people that were there were the people that were hurting and desperate, 
And I can just imagine as he is reading out this saying, I want you to give everything back. The crowd probably erupted. And when he said, I want you to give them their houses back and their fields back and their vineyards back and the money and the interest and give it all back. Don't you imagine that these people were celebrating and they were excited. And then when these people said, okay, you're right, that's what we're going to do. There had to be a joyous celebration at that time. And then Nehemiah said, okay, to seal this deal, here's the oath, and you're going to sign this thing, and we're going to do this for real. And that had to be just an amazing time as they celebrated this resolution. They had the correction that they needed. Thank God that there was a man, Nehemiah, who saw what needed to happen, stepped into it, and corrected the heart of the people. And then I think it's interesting at the very end, Nehemiah uses himself as an example. And he says in verses 14 and 15, he says, furthermore, from the day the king Artaxerxes appointed me to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year, those 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people. He is saying, I want you to know that you can look at my life and what I am telling you to do is the way that I am living my life and I can be an example to you. You can do as I do. It seems a little arrogant, doesn't it? And yet Paul said the same thing in Philippians, didn't he? He said, those things that you have, have learned from me and seen in me, those things do. When we're living in the fear of the Lord and we're living in godliness, it is okay for us to be able to say, you know, follow the godliness of my example. Now, I'm sure there were probably some things in Nehemiah's life that they didn't want to follow, but by and large, he was the example that they were supposed to follow. So God's people at this point in history were living under the waterfall of God's blessing. In spite of their sin, in spite of being exiled, he was bringing them home. And they were consumed with their work and all of this, and they were excited about the work and about resuming temple life and reigniting the community and working very hard at all of that. That was their life at that time. And as I was reading that, I was just struck by the parallelism between that and what we're doing here at AGC. It's easy for us to be excited about what God's doing. Surprised a little bit, for sure. But to be excited that God wants to plant another gospel entity in our town, and he's asked us to do it. And it's easy for us to get caught up in the setting up of classes and the setting up and tearing down every week. And what are we going to do for missions? And what are we going to do for all those things? And, and get all about all of the things that have to happen to do this and to get distracted from our hearts and let our hearts stray. And then the next thing you know, our unity starts to fall apart. And there starts to be a little bit of backbiting. And all of those things start to slowly get into our body. And may it never be so. May we always be looking for the correctives that need to happen 
in AGC and in our lives personally. So we look at the example of the nation of Israel, and we see that they failed. And you say, well, failure seems to be kind of a harsh statement until you realize that they failed at the two most important commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two biggies and they blew both of them. They failed. May that never be the case for us. It's easy to get distracted while you're doing good things and not realize that your heart has strayed because we take comfort in our work. So let me ask you a few questions this morning. When you see a brother or sister in need, these are, these are diagnostics, okay? These are, these are not meant to make you feel guilty. These are for you to take stock of where you are. When you see a brother or sister in need, are you moved with compassion to help them, or do you see an opportunity to help yourself? Number two, do you let your excitement over the growth of your investments prevent you from considering your ability to help a brother or sister in need? You know, I could, but then that would mess my plan up. Are you willing to share with your brother or sister, even if it means you have to alter your lifestyle? You would share your home with somebody who needs a place. You would let them use one of your cars, and even if that means you have to carpool. You would give them, even if it means delaying going to school, or buying the house you've been saving for, or not going on vacation, or delaying retirement. You see, in our life experience, we give out of the abundance that we have. We rarely sacrifice And the question is, am I willing, if God would ask me, am I willing to sacrifice and sacrificially give? Am I willing to alter my plan because of my love for my brother? Do you see, there are two reflection questions today. Do you see sharing the same heart as Jesus as more valuable than all of the plans and things that you have? And number two, has God's Spirit opened your eyes this morning to any needed internal correction in your life, whether it be in your thinking, whether it be in your heart, or whether it be in your behavior? You know, none of these people intended to be where they are, and yet they got there because they took their eye off the ball. This morning, we want to put our eye back on the ball and say, God, show me. Help me to know, is there something that's creeping into my life that is going to be a wedge between you and me? Is there a correction that needs to happen? In a minute, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, what I would like is for you to sit there and to think about these things in prayer and ask God's Spirit to show to you if there be anything that you've allowed into your life that needs to be corrected for the good of yourself, for the glory of God, and for the health of our church. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the wisdom of Nehemiah to see the need and to step in 
and to make the correction that needed to happen, Lord, so that your people could be restored to health. And what a joyous scene to see him uh, make that correction and to see everybody agree to it and and just the joy of knowing that they were going to care for each other the way that you had instructed them to. Lord, this morning we sit here at AGC and we're so thankful for what you have done. We're excited about what you're going to do. There's so much work that it's easy for our focus to be on the work. And I pray this morning that as, as we sit and we pray, Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring to our mind and remind us if there is anything that needs to be corrected in our lives, may today be the day that that happens. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com. Or you can find us on social media at Ink and Gospel. Thank you.